Hey everyone, Eric Rennie here, and welcome to the 55th episode of the RIT Podcast. British Columbia doesn't have an election scheduled for another two years, but there's been a lot of political change going on in the province anyway. Premier John Horgan is resigning and will be replaced sometime in the fall. The opposition BC Liberals not only named a new leader earlier this year, they might also adopt a new name for their party. To give us an overview of the BC political situation this summer, I'm joined this week by Richard Zisman, global BC reporter based out of the BC legislature. Hey, Richard, good to talk to you. Yeah, Eric, thanks for having me. So, yeah, let's uh, let's start with John Horgan. Now, he announced his intention to resign uh, It was at the end of June. What was behind that decision? I mean, obviously, there were some health issues for him, but also the timing of it. Yeah, so part of it, as you mentioned, was his health. So he was diagnosed with cancer late last year. Uh, He underwent significant treatments, and the treatments took a toll on him. Uh, They were delayed in part because he required a surgery uh, to remove some teeth to ensure that the treatment would go well. Uh, Then uh, the treatment got pushed into December, and it was an aggressive treatment from the BC Cancer Centre here, more than 30 treatments. And... Uh, Premier Horgan had planned to come back at the beginning of January. That was delayed. And then when he finally got back to work, uh, he felt a sense of exhaustion that he had never felt before. Uh, By the end of the day, uh, he was really dragging. Uh, He didn't want to do extra events, you know, sort of into the dinner hour. Uh, He carries around with him now a spray to keep uh, his um, lungs and throat moist so he can sustain long conversations. And You know, for someone like Horgan, who has been such an incredible achiever, communicator, loves to interact with people, feeling dragged down by just doing the basic parts of the job was really hard for him. And the other thing about Horgan, and we've seen this throughout his term as premier and before that, is when he makes a decision, the decision is done. There's no waffling, there's no conversations. And the sense that I got is, As we moved post the spring legislative session here in Victoria through May into June, he started getting more questions and media interviews about his future. And he had the conversation with his wife to say, well, what do we really want to do here? And when that decision was made, he decided, you know, let's pull the Band-Aid off and finish. The last piece that's important about timing is a mini controversy here around the future of our provincial museum. So the BCNDP made a big pledge to build a brand new museum at a price tag of nearly a billion dollars. It was at the same time that, you know, we're facing the same challenges everyone in this country are facing. High gas prices, record-breaking here in BC, record-breaking housing prices, inflation is hitting people uh, for their groceries and all other facets of life. That project turned sour. Uh, There was pressure from within cabinet and caucus. And so Horgan then felt he needed to back away from the project, announcing a pause on the new project. And then that cleared the way for him to announce, you know, that he would be stepping away as soon as the party announced a new leader. So all of those things timed up. I was a bit surprised. I always expected the fall after the premier's meetings, as you'll remember, Horgan hosted all the other premiers from across the country here. But I think when he decided to pull that bandaid, he went all the way and made that announcement that uh, he'll be stepping aside uh, as soon as a new leader is, uh, is sworn in here in British Columbia. What kind of shape is he handing over the BC NDP to his successor right now? Because it seems like, you know, a lot of premiers, they end up being defeated or they resign when they're at their (laughs) lowest popularity level. That's not the case here. No, it's not. And and whenever 
you, if, if any of you pop by the BC legislature, send me a note and I'll give you a tour. And one of my favorite parts is to point at all the premier's pictures on the wall and say, resigned in disgrace, resigned in disgrace, summer job premier resigned in disgrace. Because as you mentioned, Eric, getting out of politics is a lot, lot messier than getting into it. <laughs> and often people are pushed out. As you alluded to, it's not the case for Horgan. And, you know, you're the expert on the polls, but I've never seen a premier this popular walk away. It doesn't happen in British Columbia. I know there's a few occasions where we've seen it in this country. But right now, in any poll that you look at, his favorability numbers are above 50%. Uh, they have been sustained throughout the entirety of his premiership. He got a huge bounce up through COVID. But as we've seen other premiers go down, Horgan remains popular. The party remains popular. Uh, so this is largely driven by Horgan's own health. He wants to have a next chapter. He wants to do something else. Lots of rumors about that potentially being the ambassador to Ireland. Uh, he's had good relationships with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So that's something that the Prime Minister could um, probably make happen for him if he really wants it. So he's popular. If he ran again in an election today, or in the next fixed state, which is fall of 2024, he would likely win again. Uh, but he also hands over a party to the next leader that's in good shape. People like Horgan, yes. They also like the NDP. They've been able to find a sort of centrist medium where they are very popular in Metro Vancouver, addressing a lot of the issues that matter to people, uh, improving transportation, improving childcare trying to address some of those issues around the housing crisis. So he's left the party as he gets ready to leave in the fall in a really good spot. Imagine that he might do something after this. So, you know, maybe his story's not over, but I know it's really hard to do it at this stage, but is there a legacy that he'll have that is going to go beyond being one of the COVID premiers? I think that for a lot of the people who came to power, you know, in the years just before it, it's going to really color how people remember them. But will there be anything else, do you think, that people look back and say, that was that was the John Horgan years? Yeah, and that's a, a tough assessment and a great question. So uh, around resource development, there will be parts of his legacy that will remain, right? If we do ever get an operating LNG facility in British Columbia, John Horgan is the one that pushed that over the finish line. And he spent a lot of political capital to do it. You'll remember just before the pandemic, I know it's hard to remember things before the pandemic, but we had major protests in this country around the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and around the coastal gasoline pipeline. Horgan spent significant capital to get that project really to the point where, yes, we see some challenges with international commodity markets, but if that project gets done, that's because of Horgan. Uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline and Ottawa's decision to buy it largely had to do with Horgan and the resistance from the BC government to just let that project come right through BC. So those industry projects will be important. The one that Horgan points to and, and many around him is the uh, passing of the UNDRIP uh, legislation, the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. BC is the only jurisdiction to have it. I have a feeling that, you know, in a decade from now, we will see many other provinces in the federal government has similar legislation where Indigenous people have a larger role at the table in conversations about resource projects, but also about development in general and, and being a part of the legislative decision-making process. Those are the sort of big ones that have a national scale. He overhauled our public uh, car insurer. People are paying way less now than ever before. We paid something called MSP in BC. It was an extra tax for healthcare. That's now gone. The NDP government got rid of that. 
Childcare and transit will largely in part be seen as federal investments, but John Horgan led the way there. He created the roadmap that helped Justin Trudeau with success electorally as well. This driving towards, you know, providing affordable childcare, making sure that people can move around, especially urban centers. So, you know, as we see our network growing for public transit, that's going to largely, I think, People will look back and say thank you to John Horgan for that. And when people eventually do get their $10 a day child's care, that will be a term intrinsically linked to Horgan. Although I'm not convinced that everybody will ever get, you know, by the time many people get there, their kids will be far gone from uh, preschool. So uh, those are the sort of things that he touched on. And it will be, you know, like you said, COVID and his charm that people will remember him for that, that premier that sort of guided us through a time where we felt challenged and, and you could sort of look to him and, and trust him. And I know not every premier in the country uh, had that sort of reputation throughout the pandemic. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. Well, some of them did not come out of it uh, with approval ratings that are still as high as John Horgan. So he's on his way out. There will be a new leader named at the end of the year. It was looking like it was going to be a coronation, mm-hmm. which was the same thing with John Horgan when he came and became leader uh, for David Eby. Uh, but now it looks like there might actually be a race. Yeah, so a woman named Angelia Pitterai is running. She ran for the federal NDP at Vancouver Granville, one of the closest races in the country, lost to liberal Talib Nur Mohammed. And Pitterai comes from the activist wing of the party. And they have felt that John Horgan and his cabinet have largely moved to the center and worked on these pocketbook issues that I mentioned and ignored uh, the concerns from activists around resource development, addressing climate change. They raise issues around subsidies to oil and gas companies, uh, immense concern around the poison drug supply and the overdose crisis. And so there is a movement really around young people who feel disenfranchised with our electoral system and the institutions of political parties. And she just kicked off on Wednesday, um, she told me she raised enough money to pay for the entry fee in 10 minutes on a phone call. We know that many of these environmental and climate um, forward activist organizations are really good at raising money and really good at galvanizing support. So I think that's going to be easy for them. The much bigger challenge will be signing up members all across the province to rival the machinery that David Eby has created. We are expecting a pretty substantial race, but when our jobs minister Ravi Kalan dropped out of the race and said David Eby should run, it pretty much ended it. So Eby's our attorney general, 48 MLA supporters out of a caucus of 57, uh, has all of the organizers, uh, all of the support in communities sort of outside of Metro Vancouver. So, you know, I say all of, he, he's got substantial, hugely substantial support. So we still expect he's going to win. The one interesting thing uh, for political buffs like you and I that that Aperdurai's entry changes is the timing of when EB will become premier. If nobody ran against him, the party had the ability on October 4th, when the cutoff is for new um, entrants, to basically say no one else has entered, uh, David EB is going to be our leader. And that would have triggered the process of going to the lieutenant governor. And he could have been premier by mid to end of October, which would have been for this fall legislative session. He would have been in the House. He would have had his cabinet. They would have been working through transition into, into Christmas and then you know refresh for the new year. If 
if Abadurai can make it right to the end here and get all the approvals and, and spend all the money to get in the race, we're not going to have a leader until December 3rd, which is when the party will announce the winner. And that means even in a quick transition, we're not going to have a new premier until sort of mid to late December. So now you have a situation where uh, public servants and ministers and new ministers are all reviewing their briefing books through Christmas, which I don't think anyone is very excited about. And then EB is behind the eight ball for the budget process. So our budget will come out in February. If he was in in October, he could influence the budget process. If he's not, he can't. And then that brings up the larger question of, okay, then does he have enough time to get his footing before potentially calling an early election? So I know this is insider stuff, but I also know that's who listens to your podcast. So, so those are the sort of things that happen with a new entrant. Do I think she's going to beat him? No, but she can bring, and then the other part we didn't talk about is the ideas she brings up, right? She's going to force David Eby to go on the record on a bunch of these issues that are going to be really uncomfortable for him, where he'd much rather be in the center getting ready to face Kevin Falcon and the BC Liberals. Now he's going to be having to face his own environmental wing of his own party, grind through that, and then get ready. And the Liberals will be armed with all of the quotes that came up throughout debates and interviews throughout the whole process. But Eby himself is not as much of a centrist as Horgan, right? And and this is one of the big questions, is who is Davey, David Eby politically now? He was an activist, right? He was at the Pivot Legal Society and the, the BC Civil Liberties Association. He was waving the flag to, you know, stop uh, some of the development around the Olympics and concerns around police presence and security, and uh, into politics, he has really been heavily focused around the housing file, especially in opposition, around the issue of money laundering. Uh, and then he's the one that led the charge uh, in terms of overhauling our public insurer. But the money laundering piece is critical. He's been highly critical of the role of Chinese money here in the province. So, But over time, he has transitioned because the NDP knows the way that they govern in this province is by being centrist. And if you shift out too far to the left, you'll lose some of that support in Metro Vancouver, which is where the party needs support. So we're still sort of trying to understand what a premier EB looks like. He's talking, you know, inflation, affordability issues, you know, all the sort of pocketbook again that gets these people elected. But when he does start to govern, the one big difference between the two of them, Horgan um, love to hand over power to his ministers, that that they were ultimately the ones responsible for the files and he held them responsible. EB will pick and choose some issues within ministries that he wants as his pet projects, and he will work either closely in tandem with the minister or take over big chunks of files, housing one of them himself. And that's going to be challenging for the public servant and the minister as EB sort of operates that way. So it's going to be interesting to see where he falls on the spectrum, but in, in BC, it's less important because we know federal conservative voters largely vote BC Liberal, federal NDP voters largely vote uh, NDP, and it's those federal liberal voters that you're grappling over to win a provincial election. And if you don't have policies to cater to those federal liberals, you're not going to win. You brought up the tantalizing uh, prospect of an early election, uh, which mm -hmm. is always a lot of fun for me. But if it is a, an election that comes sooner rather than later... Uh, it'll be, uh, obviously it'll happen either way, but Kevin Falcon is going to be uh, the opponent for David Eby. And how has his first six months as leader gone? Because he uh, became leader earlier on this year, replacing Andrew Wilkinson. Um, 
how is he setting himself up and how could he contrast differently between what would have been, you know, a Horgan re-election campaign and what could be David Eby as the first uh, time that he's leading the party into a campaign? Yeah, so it's very, very different because in Horgan, uh, you would have been facing someone who had big name recognition and was carrying with them this popularity. Now the Liberals and Falcon are going to be focused in on not just introducing or reintroducing Falcon to British Columbians, because he was a prominent member of the Gordon Campbell cabinet and then briefly Christy Clark's cabinet as well. But it's going to be about also framing his opponent in David Eby, and the party's going to be balancing this fine line. My sense early on was the Falcon was doing very well. Uh, he is a more effective communicator than his predecessor, Andrew Wilkinson. He carries sort of greater gravitas in terms of understanding uh, the way in which both policy and politics intertwine, especially in Metro Vancouver. Uh, he's focusing in on some key issues here, family doctor shortage, uh, an increase in crime in downtown cores. Those issues will help drive him for a while. But then the Liberals will have to convince people they have their own ideas. And what also stunned me is there was one uh, Angus Reid Institute poll that came out that looked at favorability numbers. And it showed that Falcon continues to have extremely high unfavorability numbers. And it seems like, and it surprised me, that that feeling that people still have about the BC Liberals as their time ended with Christy Clark is wearing off on Falcon. And it was something like high 30s, low 40s in terms of unfavorability. And for a new leader, that's bad. <laughs> you know, you don't have that buffer like a lot of new leaders do to introduce yourselves. You're starting on an impression that people don't like you. And it's going to be hard for him to gain on that. So I grapple in my head, is a sooner election good for Falcon or does he want to go all the way to fall of 2024? EB will have to weigh the same thing because, you know, we know him. And he's on the news a lot, and he's a prominent member. He was even named uh, at some point, I think 2018, as the most powerful person in Vancouver by, the, by Vancouver Magazine. Like People know him, but it's going to take time for people, as we talked about, to know what a David E.B. NDP looks like. So there's a few windows for early election. Let's toss out spring of 2023. I just think, especially now with the contested race, that's too soon. But fall of 2023 spring of 2024, and then again, the set date is the fall of 2024. So I, I think people think he'll go early. How early? I think we, we're, I don't think he even knows. I don't think anyone knows because they, they, they'll want to look at polling. They'll want to look at issues. They'll want to get their new cabinet in place. They'll need to con talk to a bunch of the current MLAs who are, you know, late 50s, 60s, uh, about whether they want to run again, and then Evie will will recruit candidates. So all of that takes time. So I wouldn't I wouldn't believe they're rushing to the polls, but I also would think that there's a strong possibility that uh, he'll go early. If I were to guess, my my bets on spring of 2024. A lot of my colleagues in the gallery are on fall of 2023. So we we will see where it ends up. Obviously, it didn't hurt John Horgan to go early uh, when he went in 2020. Um, yeah. You mentioned the baggage from the BC Liberals. Uh, and their time in government. And it's they're trying to get away from it in a way because they might change their name. And this is the kind of nerdery that I'm sure you love as much as me. First of all, why are they changing the name? Yeah. But secondly, what could the name be? There's not a lot of good options that are available to them. There are very few good options, Eric. And, and one of the issues here in BC is there are very strict rules around when you can use a name. 
And I'm trying to remember from the stories I did when they were proposing this, but it's basically if the name has been used at any point registered by any party in the last 10 years, it can't be used for the next 10 years. And they could have run 87 candidates or one candidate. And there are different issues around um, who owns the rights to those names so that the name that they really wanted was the British Columbia Party, but they don't have access to it. And they have tried through lawyers <laughs> to uh, get that name and elections BC's uh, rules are very, very clear. So it's not going to be the BC party. Uh, there are other sort of maturations on that are, are challenging, uh, you know, using free enterprise, sort of these sort of terms that are often tied to this party. And the reason why they want to move away from BC liberals, there is a movement within the party from the conservatives, the big C or little C conservatives that have always felt that they are vulnerable to the BC conservatives or another right-wing party in ridings mainly in rural or suburban British Columbia. And we've seen that, Eric, in a bunch of ridings where the BC Conservatives uh, pick up a few thousand votes and all of a sudden the NDP have won a seat that they have no business winning. And that includes in the last election in Chilliwack or Abbotsford, the fact that the NDP won both ridings in Langley, three ridings in Richmond. In some of those cases, if not all of them, the conservative got enough votes to sort of cover that gap. And the thought is, if we get rid of the liberal name, we can get back to our conservative roots. I don't think it's that simple. I think a name away from the BC Liberals actually hurts them because, as we talked about earlier, the election is won when you get federal liberals. But there's a movement within the party. Falcon comes from the conservative branch himself. So there's a full committee here. Again, if we have an early election, I'm not convinced the name change will happen before this election. It's just so complicated, as you and I both know, right? You got to get all the new signs, you get all the new branding, all the new office space. Like it's just, it takes a long time to make all those changes. And are you really going to go to an election with a new name that nobody has ever heard of? The the BC Free Enterprise Coalition Party and whatever acronym that turns into. And people are going to look at the ballot and go, who's that? So it, it's it's a it's an interesting process. If Falcon remains leader, which I expect him to, uh, that will that there will be a name change, I expect. But when it's going to happen, I'm not so sure. And I and I'm curious about how they do the naming contest. Like I like I really am. Like it's it's fun, you know. Guys like you and I thinking about buzzwords and things like that. And what do you want? What does a name say? And you got to make sure that it doesn't turn into some acronym that people can use as memes to make fun of you. And so there are no doubt focus grouping all sorts of possible names to see which one uh, can resonate best with people in, in what could be a potentially quick transition of names. I think you and I are probably both old enough to remember when they had the naming contest for the Toronto Raptors. Yeah, and I think it was on like cereal boxes and everything like that. And uh, so maybe the maybe they could try something like that. Uh, it's so <laughs> but... funny because because anyone who remembers that it was obviously the Jurassic Park was the biggest movie in the world. And I think it beat out the Toronto Towers, which everyone was like, that makes perfect sense. You have the CN Tower. Basketball players are tall. But no, no one can beat the might of the dinosaur, especially when it's the most popular movie in the world. And so that's one of the problems you run into is what is buzzy today and you know feels like it resonates today uh, may tire 
uh, pretty quickly. But as the Raptors found out, when you win banners and championships, the name doesn't really matter. So I think Kevin Falcon probably has the same thing. If he can, if he can, if he can win the premiership, the name doesn't really matter. But it's about making sure that it doesn't work against them. Yeah, and I wonder if the Toronto Raptors would have taken that name if they knew what we now know, that Velociraptors actually were largely feathered and not <laughs> nearly as scary as in the movie. Um, right. But there is, you do see the uh, the confusion because in, in polls, provincial level polls, the BC right. Conservatives are usually at 10, 15%, but in an actual election, they usually get two. So there's clearly some people who are thinking that this is a different party than what it actually is. So, but you're right, it, it all is all about coalition building, right? So for the BC Liberals, changing a name might make it easier to do some messaging, but it might also put a couple people off that thought that maybe this party was a bit more centrist than than, than it is, right? And who are you appealing to, right? Is it your members or is it the general electorate? And when political parties have that challenge, and so many do, that often leads to problems, is when they're focused so heavily on pleasing their members you know, this group of people who have paid and taken out a membership rather than the electorate, it it punishes you in general elections. And that's why I don't focus too heavily on the polling now at this point, because like you said, the conservative numbers are way out of whack. But ultimately, all that really matters for the conservatives is how they do in very specific ridings. So even provincial numbers for the BC conservatives don't really reflect what impact they could actually have on the electoral map. It's also really hard to look at any polling now because, you know, Falcon's new and Evie is not the leader yet. Uh, you know, a lot is going to happen before we actually see the two individuals that have a chance to become premier sort of square off. And then at that point, I think we can reasonably look at some numbers and say, okay, that makes sense. And, you know, through this whole conversation, we haven't even mentioned the BC Greens and, you know, their polling has largely remained stagnant over the last few election cycles themselves. They are sort of trying to figure out who they are post Andrew Weaver with Sonia first to know as the leader. And she performed quite well in the 2020 election, but that campaign was so different and strange because of COVID. And so she's just trying to work on finding issues, uh, finding a base and then growing on that base so they can become relevant in more than just a handful of writings. I wonder also just to, to close the loop on the Angelia Pitterai story is that if she is not successful as the leader, you know, whether her organizers all end up going to the BC Greens and sort of abandoning all mass the NDP you know, even some of her organizers or people I recognize as either former green organizers or even green candidates and are now helping her in an NDP leadership. So there's an integration there as well. Yeah, I wanted to finish on the Greens, but you more or less just covered it. Uh, maybe we can just finish on this with if you have a thought about it. Uh, the Greens are having a federal leadership race. BC is very important. Elizabeth May might run again. Um, you have the Conservatives that are having a rather divisive race. And I'm just, I'm just curious from your vantage point, are these federal campaigns, these federal leadership campaigns, having any reverberations on uh, the provincial scene? It's funny, Eric, and, and you know you know this, and, and I grew up in Ottawa, and I moved my way west slowly, and the further you go west, the less this federal politics really matters, especially when it comes to provincial politics. But the green race will be more interesting, I think. I think the only time it really matters is when you're sort of running leadership races in conjunction with each other because it really splits out 
the organizers and it makes it more challenging to raise money and memberships when you have leadership races going on at the same time. So the fact that the provincial NDP does not have a federal race going on right now is to their benefit. Uh, we're, you know, we haven't even, I think Jean Charest was out here briefly, but has spent very little time focused on BC. I know former Premier Christy Clark has been trying to organize for him, but largely the caucus here is in support of Pierre Polyevra. And, and that's sort of the sense, especially, you know, in the suburban Vancouver and rural areas, that that's the only sort of sense, but it's not having any impact on the provincial conversation. If Elizabeth runs again, that one will have a larger impact. She is a political institution here on Vancouver Island. Uh, if she's the leader again, there will be some sort of uh, reverberations of, of what that means for the Green Caucus and that. But it's but not a huge impact in terms of policy or, or sort of dominating the, the stream of conversation. Lots of interesting stuff going on in BC, and I hadn't really heard all that much about an, an early election, so now I'm really excited <laughs> about what's happening in, in BC politics. So I, I hope we'll have a chance to speak again. So thanks so much, Richard. I really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, I would love it, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Richard Zussman. Last weekend, the New Brunswick Liberals named their new leader. It will be Susan Holt, who won just under 52% of the vote against T.J. Harvey on the third and final ballot. She is the first female permanent leader of the party. She doesn't have a seat, but she's already had offers from sitting Liberal MLAs for them to resign to make a seat available to her. The next election in New Brunswick isn't scheduled until 2024. Okay, that'll be it for this week's episode of the Red Podcast. My apologies for the last couple of weeks. I've been having some audio issues uh, with my Zoom. Uh, if any of you out there are Zoom experts, I'm I'm at really my wit's end in trying to make this work. It's just not sounding very good, and I do not know how to fix it. Uh, so my apologies for the not great quality of my end of the Zoom interviews over the last few weeks. I'm hoping that I can get a fix soon. All right, well, that'll be it. And uh, as always, please do head over to therit.ca to see all the latest from me. You can read me instead of listening, so maybe it'll sound a little better in your head. All right, until next week, thanks for listening.